I think that's it. All right. We are in Luke chapter 2, slowly making our way through the gospel of Luke. And uh, we started chapter 2 last week. We uh, saw the, the Christmas story, you know, the birth of Jesus. And, um, and one of the things that we talked about is how God could have chosen anywhere. He could have chosen a palace for Jesus to be born in. He could have chosen the most powerful people to announce it to. But he chose this little place, this little town in Bethlehem. And the announcement went out to shepherds. And as we talked about, shepherds were the bottom of the social food chain. Nobody liked shepherds. Their, their word was no good in a court of law. And, and so those people that society looked to and went, we can't trust a word they say, that's who God entrusts to share the word that the Messiah has been born. I love it. I just love the way that God does things. Now in chapter 2, we're going to see, um, I, I think, just some very cool things. But it's easy for us to read through this section of Scripture and just kind of go, okay, yeah, and, and not understand what's taking place. These are some encouragement, I think, for Mary and Joseph, but I think there's much bigger things happening here um, where we see God and man colliding in some ways. We see things that were begun long ago being fulfilled. And Jesus will tell his disciples later, I have not come to destroy the law, but I have come to fulfill it. And even in this, in his infancy, going to the temple and, and being brought to the temple and these things, there is fulfillment taking place. And uh, so... Anyhow, I, I, I'm excited about it. I think there's some great application for us here as well. So let's pray, and we will get back into chapter 2. Lord Jesus, how desperately we want to know you more. You're the reason we're here, not to be a part of a group or a club or a social structure, but to know you. And now as we open your word, we pray you would open our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would speak life into us, and that we would be changed by your word and by its power. Again, we just give ourselves to you and this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 21. It says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, two pairs of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Um, now, again, these two things here are very, very common in, in the Hebrew culture. We already saw it with John, that at eight days, that's when they circumcised the children, the boys according to the law. And it was a lot more than just the act. It wasn't just like, oh, this is something that we should be done. This was bringing in the male children into the covenant. This was the sign given to Abraham and 
that that covenant given to Abraham would end up becoming the law given to Moses. But this was the sign of it. This was the proof of it. And, and so it was a very big deal. And they, usually they'd have lots of people over and family and there'd be a party and there's all these things take place, right? And so, again, we go, well, okay, this, this is pretty common. It's common that when a boy was born, they would take him to the temple, temple, offer sacrifice, and dedicate the boy to the Lord. Um, but there's some important significance here. In fact, even as I was studying it this week, I found myself, my, my mind being blown. So I'm hoping that what happened up here is going to make its way out there to make sense. Because I just think there's so many cool things um, in, in what's taking place here. Uh, Luke makes a point of saying that these things are part of the law. And um, that, of course, Mary and Joseph were, were carrying them out. And I think, first of all, trying to imagine how strange it must have been for Mary and Joseph to be Jesus' parents. Even, at, even as soon as he was born. I can't imagine how much responsibility. Okay, this is the Messiah, the Son of God. And we don't even know what we're doing. You know, I remember when Candy and I first got home from the hospital with Hannah, our firstborn, we just sat in there and stared at her in her little carry, you know, it had gone in the car, and we didn't want to take her out, and we just stared at her. We're like, I don't even know what we're doing. She didn't come with a set of instructions. The doctor's like, have fun, get out of here, and, and they had even less, right? But Luke also is going to make some points in this, the rest of this chapter that Jesus was not just a normal kid. You know, he, he, there were things taking place around him because of who he was, and there were taking, things taking place by him, even at a young age, as we'll see later in the chapter. Um, and so, again, Mary and Joseph following the law just shows their love for their lo- the Lord and their devotion. Um, the first thing that we're told of is that they had him circumcised on the eighth, eighth day. And again, that's the idea of bringing him under the covenant, making him a full part of Israel. Why this is such a big deal, why this started to blow my mind, is keep in mind who Jesus is. That that covenant that was given to Abraham back in Genesis, when Abraham was was taken away from his home and out in the desert to follow the Lord, and the Lord's like, I'm going to make a covenant with you. That was Jesus that made that covenant with him. That was God himself making that covenant. And now Jesus is here being brought under it. And and again, why that's important is because it's revealing God's whole plan. This kind of full circle thing that's taking place. The covenant given to Abraham by the Lord, and now the Lord has become one of us and is being brought under the covenant. Um, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, is perfect. Nothing wrong with it. Everything that it points out is absolutely flawless. This is what's right. 
this is what's wrong. But a covenant has two sides to it. It is a contract. And so this contract that began with Abraham and God, God was saying, I'll do this, and you do that. And we'll have an agreement. And then as that turned into the law of Moses, it was the same thing. It was a contract. Israel, when you do this, I will do that. The problem, though the law itself is absolutely flawless, the problem with the old covenant is us. We cannot keep the law. And honestly, that is the point of the law. A lot of people still, even today, think that the, the Old Testament, the law, the Ten Commandments, were given to make us perfect. That was never their purpose. The law was given to show us our imperfections. It was to be held up to us like a mirror, that we would look into it and go, I can't do that. I can do some of it, but I can't do all of it. And by not being able to do all of it, it makes all of us sinners. It makes all of us criminals. So what has to take place? The author of the covenant becomes one of us that he can fulfill the covenant on both sides. That's what's happening right here. This little thing of Jesus going and being circumcised, being brought under the covenant, it's him fulfilling both sides of this, or the beginning of him fulfilling both sides of this covenant. Being able to carry both sides of the contract because we cannot carry our own side. So he came for us. Again, the small little event, but it has huge significance. The next part, the dedication of the temple. Again, uh, laid out in the Jewish law that when a son was born, he was to be taken to the temple, sacrifice made, and he would be dedicated to the Lord, the firstborn son. And a uh, couple things to that. First of all, I think people understand, well, why are the sons dedicated? Why not the daughters as well? Well, actually, it makes it real clear when the instruction is given um, that this was a reminder to Israel. This was to be an ongoing, continual, generation-by-generation generation reminder that when God delivered Israel from Egypt, the last plague was that of the angel of death. You guys remember the night of Passover? And, and every firstborn male in Egypt would die, including Israel, if they did not get put under the blood. Right? They would sacrifice a lamb, put its blood upon the doorpost and on the top, the lentil, and then they would have the Passover meal, the first meal there in Egypt. So while they were safe, and because of the blood, the angel of death would pass over that home, every firstborn male in Egypt died that night. And taking the firstborn sons and dedicating them at the temple usually required the sacrifice of a lamb, the blood being spilled, to redeem the firstborn son, to remind all Israel the reason that their sons lived was because of God, because of the blood that was shed, because of the sacrifice that was made. 
and that they were continually being redeemed generation after generation. We're told that Mary and Joseph sacrificed um, doves and pigeons. This was allowed in the law for those who were poor, which gives us this idea of where Mary and Joseph were, that they weren't a wealthy family, that they didn't have lots of resources. It was still allowed by the law. It wasn't a, a compromise or sacrifice. I mean, they weren't somehow coming up short. But all of that was to point back to that first Passover. Again, why is that important? Because that Passover was pointing to Jesus. It was all about him. And if you've ever sat at a Seder meal or a Passover meal and, and, and really had somebody explain the elements on the table and how they fit biblically and what they are a picture of, it is breathtaking how much of it points to Jesus. Over and over again. I think for me, the, the greatest example is that there at the meal, there are three, uh, they call them loaves of bread, but they're really like a matzah cracker, right? And there's three of them in a stack. They take the middle one out, they wrap it, break it, and hide it. And then at some point during the meal, the children go and find it. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is taken, wrapped, broken, buried to be found by the children. So many cool things. So the Passover is pointing forward to Jesus, and now even Jesus' dedication here in the temple is, is like completing that loop. It's fulfilling what it was to be all about. And again, they're all unaware of this. And Mary and Joseph didn't consider these things. No one in the temple knew these things. But as we look at it now, we go, man, this makes so much sense of how the Lord works, of how he puts these things together. And I even think just Jesus being in the temple itself, right? The purpose of the temple was not to somehow house God. In fact, God made it very clear when, they went, when he took them from the tabernacle to the building of the temple. He's like, you can't build a house for me. I'm not going to live in a house. And that was not to be what the temple's purpose was. The point of the temple was it was a place of contact where mankind would have one place that they could be in contact with God. He didn't live there, but he could be contacted there. His, his presence, his Shekinah glory dwelled over the Ark of the Covenant. And now the Lord himself God Almighty, God Eternal, is there in the temple. He will be the source of absolute contact that all mankind has access to God through. What the temple was meant for, Jesus will fulfill completely. Again, for me, my mind was just like, <laughs> with all of these. <laughs> I thought it was all so cool. Because I, I tell you, as many times as I've read through Luke, I just read through that. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, he's circumcised, he's dedicated, that's nice. And then they met some people in the temple, that's nice too. But it's so much more. Like I said, he is fulfilling the law even in his infancy simply by being there in the temple. Powerful. All right, verse 25. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just 
and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother Mary marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher, and she was of great age, and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and a, this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of all, spoke of him to all of those who were looking for the redemption of Jeru- in Jerusalem. Now, Israel knew that the time of the Messiah was near. Uh, they didn't know exactly when, but they knew it was close. And, and that had a lot to do with prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel that they were like, it, it's, it's coming up. And so there was this anticipation of uh, the Messiah arriving within that generation. And then you've got what took place with Zechariah and the angel speaking to him in the temple and him losing his voice and John being born and the prophecy that was spoken over John. And all of that was made widely known, right? So and we were told that in Scripture that this wasn't kept secret. Everybody had heard about this. So there's this buzz and this anticipation about what is God doing. Again, keep in mind, there had been 400 years of silence before this. No prophecy, no revelation, no scripture, nothing given from God to Israel for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, it just seems like the windows of heaven have been opened and all these things are taking place. So there's anticipation. We see this man, Simeon. And we get the idea that he's older, but we don't know for sure. We, we were told very clearly about Anna. But with Simeon, uh, we just know that he is in this great anticipation of the Lord's Christ being revealed. And, and other than that, we don't know much. What we know, I think, says a lot about him. Verse 35 says that he was a man that was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's a great description. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we would love to have said about us, right? That to have somebody say that you are just, right? That's, that's a great compliment. Saying that you have integrity. Saying that you're a person that can be trusted, right? And with, with Simeon, that's exactly what it's saying. 
that he was a person that understood, according to the word of God, right and wrong. That he was a person that you could talk to, you could ask questions, and he would give you sound advice because he was just. He wasn't out for himself. And to me, the idea of somebody being just doesn't just mean they know right and wrong, but they do what's right even when it's hard. That it's when it's difficult to do the right thing, they still do the right thing. They're just. We find that he is devout. And again, this is a, a great term. I think there's kind of some negativity that has gone uh, or been delivered to this, this term. And I, I think that's a shame because honestly what it means is that Simeon, he just loved the Lord. And he didn't let things get in between the relationship between him and the Lord. So there was a, the, the idea of being devout is nothing's allowed to have that space. The, the work doesn't come in. Other things don't come in. Worldly things don't come in. And when they do, they're removed quickly because my devotion to the Lord is the most important thing. He was devout. And that he was patiently waiting for God's promise. And I like how the, the word that's used here, the consolation of Israel. The, the Greek word for consolation literally means the calling near. Isn't that a great, I, I mean, it so, gives me such a great picture that he's waiting for God to call Israel near. And that's what he's about. He's, we're also told that all of these things have a reality in his relationship with God because the Holy Spirit is upon him. This is a guy filled with the Lord. Man, he, he's, when he speaks a word, it's the Holy Spirit that's empowering him to do it. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him very specifically very clearly about things. In this case, he tells him that, uh, verse 26 says, that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I mean, that's very specific. That's, that's very detailed. It isn't like, hey, you're going to be blessed. And, and we're like, yay, I like to be blessed. It's, it's like, no, this is going to happen. You're, these events are going to take place before your death. And for him, it's like, that's all I want. I don't even care what happens to me after that moment. If I can see the Christ, if I can see the Messiah, Lord, you can take me home. I'm good. And so this is Simeon. And again, I just, the picture in my head is a guy I can't wait to meet in heaven, right? Because as I would imagine, he probably woke up pretty much like any other day. But we're told that he was led by the Spirit to the temple, not man. Gets up, brushes his teeth, whatever he's going to do, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is like, Simeon, it's today. It's time to go to the temple. And I just picture him having so much excitement about, <laughs> whoa, you know, just you're, when you feel the Holy Spirit move upon you in power, there's just this, it's like electricity flowing through you, right? And that's how I picture Simeon, that he, he goes in and, and, right to Jesus. There's just this couple there with the baby in their arms, and he goes over, and again, in my head, I can just picture this sweet elderly man just coming and just like scoop him up right out of Mary's arms and just begin to weep because this is what he's been waiting for. And, and it's all he needs. Verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, according to the promise that you've made to me personally, right? Not just, 
You know, a lot of times we talk about the word of God. This, we're talking about the written scripture, and that's right. But when God makes a promise to us that, of course, we'll be in alignment with scripture, never contrary, never outside of scripture, I think it's good for us to claim that as your word to me. You have spoken your promise to me. And then I am looking, like Simeon, for that promise to be fulfilled in God's timing. Not my timing, but in his. And he's, again, he's holding Jesus and he's like, man, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good to go right now. Lord, you can let your, your servant depart in peace. And then he begins to speak this intense prophecy. And again, we can just read through this really quick. And like, oh, okay, that's some, some heavy things or whatever. But it's really quite intense, the things that he's saying. Um, first of all, he, he says that Jesus is salvation. He is the Lord's salvation. He is going to bring light and revelation to the Gentiles. That leaders in Israel will rise and fall because of him. That he will be the source of great conflict. Now again, if you're Mary and Joseph and you're there and this sweet old man picks up Jesus and is like, oh, the Lord's salvation, you'd be like, wow, awesome. And then he starts speaking these things and there's going to be conflict because of him. And leaders are going to resist him. And then he tells Mary, and a sword will pierce your heart. That's not the part you wanted to hear. But even at that, he tells her that it is for all things to be revealed. That it has to be that way. Yeah, it's going to be heartbreaking. It's going to be hard. But it has to happen just this way. Again, powerful. And right at the same moment, in comes Anna. And again, I get this, I get all these like pictures, I can see like movie scenes in my head. And uh, as, as they're having this moment with Simeon, here comes Anna, this very elderly woman. Um, and, and really, it's kind of interesting because she doesn't say a whole lot to them as far as we know. She understands who Jesus is, and then she just begins to tell everyone in the temple. <laughs> that's the Messiah. That kid over there that she's holding, that's the Messiah. And I kind of picture, for the most part, people like, okay, auntie. You know, just like, <laughs> sweet Anna, she's in the temple every day. She's just about prayer, and she loves the Lord, and everybody knows it. And, and so she's just like, everyone's like, yeah, okay, that's nice. You know, it just kind of dismisses. Because most Israel is looking for a king. They're looking for a ruler. They're looking for a military genius. And here's Simeon and Anna going, no, he's right there. He is this baby. This, this is the Lord's salvation. And I'd say, from what we're reading, nobody else got it. But nobody else had to get it. That's, that's the other cool thing here, is that this, not only, I believe, is an encouragement and a blessing to Mary and Joseph, this is for Anna and Simeon. This is the fulfillment they've been waiting for. And I started thinking about that. How often do we get used by the Lord to fulfill somebody else's prayer and we're not even aware of it? You know, we start 
dealing with our stuff and our concerns and what about this or what about work or this relationship and we kind of just get very focused on what we are dealing with and we forget that there are people watching our lives. Just the way that Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple, we bring Jesus into the workplace and into our communities and into our schools and wherever we go, we're bringing Jesus with us. And as we go through difficulties, and I really think it's far more in difficulties than it is on the mountaintop. I think they watch us when things go well as well. Like, ah, good for them. But when they really pay attention is when things do not go well in our lives. When heartache, when trial, when difficulty hit, people watch And they want to see if the Jesus we talk about is real. And I have found that it's in the other or on the other side of those trials where people that have been watching come and say, okay, I want to know more. I I, I see that you just dealt with all of that very differently. And I want to know why. Right? And and so we end up getting to be a messenger simply by the life that we're living. Answering prayers, and in some cases, while I'm using the example of a non-believer, I believe it's just as true for a believer that's struggling or in difficulty or whatever, that they've been praying for things, waiting for things, maybe for years and years, and God wants to use us, just living out our normal life, to be an answer to their prayers. I just think we need to be open and aware of that, Again, that's what we see here. Mary and Joseph are just doing what's set before them, trying to be faithful, and they end up becoming a huge answer to the prayers of Simeon and Anna. All right, verse 39. I'm going to take kind of a big chunk here. It says, So when they performed all things according to the law of the Lord and returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth, and, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and with the grace of God, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, as they, were re- as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered in Jerusalem. Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been with the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. And so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And then he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Um, 
we flash forward 12 years from that dedication of the temple now to the family returning to Jerusalem to the Passover, uh, which a lot of people did. It was one of those things that if any way possible for them to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover there, they did. And so every year, Jerusalem would just expand massively with so many people coming into it at the same time. And so they go down there. And I think one of the things that you can read about, wait a second. So first of all, it's a day before they realize Jesus isn't with them. And how did that go how did that happen, right? When we think about the way we travel, everybody's in the minivan going down the road, and we're like, whoa, we forgot him at the gas station. Hopefully it wouldn't be like a day away. <laughs> when I was a youth pastor, we used to always do that to kids that would linger too long, is that <laughs> we'd all get back in the van and drive off, <laughs> leave that one kid inside, coming, and he'd run up, <laughs> and we're like, bye. We'd turn around eventually, but... <laughs> but the way they traveled was like in caravans, Right? And so the people from Nazareth, whether friends or family or just the people that you knew in the town, would all travel to Jerusalem together. And they'd camp alongside the road, and they'd share meals, and all the kids would play together, and they'd all run around, and, and they'd stay with aunts and uncles, and then that's just kind of how it went. And so for them to go a day and go, yeah, well, I'm sure he's around here somewhere, it was not that uncommon. <laughs> and so don't come down on Joseph and Mary too hard. It's just the way things were done. But again, I can't imagine how terrifying it must have been for Mary and Joseph to go, we lost the Son of God. We're, we had one job, just one job, take care of this kid, and I don't know where he's at. And so they go back to Jerusalem, and it takes three days to find him. Again, I can't, oh gosh, this is the, it puts a pit in my stomach just thinking about it. They thought that he was with the family. He wasn't. They go to Jerusalem three days. They're searching frantically. And then they find him. Verse 46 says, He was in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. This is one of those that I want to watch the replay of. I would just love to hear 12-year-old Jesus going, Huh, but have you ever thought of this, right? <laughs> and... And in the temple, especially at the time of Passover, this is where the theological scholars would gather. This was the tippity-top of all of the deep thinkers of, of Judaism would be in the temple at that time. So it's not like he was talking to the second-string priests and asking them questions. These were the guys. And the fact that they were astonished at what they were hearing just blew them away as Jesus would ask questions and give them answers. Again, it, for us, it would be like seeing some 12-year-old kid, you know, sitting down with Albert Einstein and, and just being able to keep up with him and stump him on questions. We'd be like, that's crazy. That's kind of what's going on here. That they heard, verse 47 says, they, all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Now, Mary... And Joseph find him, and again, you can understand they're a little upset. In fact, I think it's kind of understated. Just said that they sought him anxiously. <laughs> Absolute full-scale freak out for three days, and then they find him. And his answer to them is interesting because some people go back and forth. Did Jesus understand completely who he was all the time, or did he somehow, was it revealed to him? I believe he, he understood it all the time. 
from the baby laid in the manger through his entire life. He knew exactly who he was and why he was there. And this is one of those things that I think shows that. Because he asked, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? In the Jewish culture, 12 years old is when a young son would begin his apprenticeship into his father's business. 13 is when he became an actual apprentice. But 12, he began his training. And here Jesus is in his father's house about his father's business. Basically saying, I'm starting my apprenticeship. (laughs) I am about what my father is about. And that's really, again, it's not a disrespect to Mary, but it is kind of like, you know why I'm here. You know what I'm about. You, why were you even looking for me? You knew that this is what I have to do, right? Now, Mary and Joseph don't fully understand that. It, it, it tells us they didn't understand, you know, it, the words that he spoke to them. But still, again, Mary just takes all these things into her heart. And I love that about Mary's character. It's mentioned several times that she didn't quite get what's going on, but she just put it into her heart, kept all of these things in her heart. And I think as Luke was probably interviewing Mary, that kept coming up. That he'd ask, well, what happened? You know, Jesus was in the temple, and how did that go? And she's like, and I didn't understand a word he said. I just went, this is going to be important. I'm just tucking it away, right? I love it. I think Mary and Joseph are a great picture to us because God has called them to something that's so much bigger than they are. So much beyond their ability to do. They don't have the skills for this. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the strength. The only thing they can do is trust God more and more. The things that God has called us to in life, even in our ordinary life, I think it's so good for us to admit, are beyond our ability. Whether it's raising kids, or whether it's a job we have, or responsibilities we've given, There's something very healthy that takes place when we humble ourselves and go, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. Because what it causes us to do is say, God, I need you. If I think I can do it on my own, then I'm like, I got this, God. I'll talk to you when it goes wrong, right? And we go on our way. But when we start off, I go, I don't know what I'm doing. I have ideas, but they're probably wrong. I need you. And and we, we have to press in closer. We have to get in closer. We have to be in his word. We have to be in prayer to know his heart. And and that's all Joseph and Mary have. They don't have resources. They couldn't even afford a lamb for a sacrifice. They don't have anything other than their faith. God wants to use us in so many powerful ways. And I think too often we miss out on them, or at least we, we let them go by us, Because we think we've got it handled. We think that we can take care of it in our own wisdom and strength. But again, if if we patiently wait and we humble ourselves to say, no, I don't know. Then then we find ourselves in a place like Simeon where we're we're looking for what the Lord's going to do. We're patiently waiting for the consolation. We're patiently waiting for God to call us near. And to do or work through us where he calls others near through our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.